Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. So I'm very excited about my next guest here. Um, his name is Matthew Harris, and he is a, a professor at Colorado State University in Pueblo, uh, Pueblo Colorado. I always get that mixed up. And um, he has written some fascinating um, materials about Ezra Taft Benson. Um, the first book that I accidentally ordered was called Thunder from the Right, and this is uh, this is actually a book that he edited that has various uh, essays on Ezra Taft Benson. And I ended up realizing, oh, this is the book uh, Matt wants to get. So I ended up copying. He sent me the PDF, and there's the book right there. I hold it up and say hello. Hi, nice to be with you today, Stephen. <laughs> Welcome to the show. So that's the book you got to get. All right. And uh, so, and, and welcome, Matt. I, I'm so honored to have you on. Thank you. Okay, so um, I did, I, I love this book. So it's called Watchmen on the Tower, Ezra Taft Benson and the Making of the Mormon Right. Now to my audience, I have a, I, my audience is the full spectrum of the restoration. That's been the attempt all along was to appeal to the right, left and everything in between. And um I know that some of you are very big fans of Ezra Taft Benson. I've interacted with some of you. I know some of you are also very sympathetic to the John Birch Society. Um, I just want you to know upfront that you know we're not here to attack you uh, and and your and your beliefs or anything like that, um, because Matt is going to say some things and make some conclusions that you may not agree with. But the important thing is is that you know Matt comes from he's writing from a scholarly angle, and he did a ton of research. Now just to give you an idea. I, I printed off the PDF and the notes section is almost as big as the book itself. This is like some D. Michael Quinn documentation that we got going here, folks. So even if you don't like the conclusions that Matt is making in this book, it's really important to realize that if you want to get to know Ezra Taft Benson and his history, um, and he has all the footnotes, so you can research it yourself. So I think that's really important for you all to understand. So. Um, I want us to start with a story about Ezra Taft Benson. In 1943, he's called in, I believe, by President Grant into a room. And tell us what happens. Well, um, so, so, Ezra, it's, so he was called as an apostle, but I just want to give a little backstory prior to that. Um, Ezra Taft Benson was born in Whitney, Idaho, which is a predominant uh, Mormon community. And when I say predominant, you might be able to count on one hand the number of people in that community who are not Mormons. And uh, he rose up through the ranks of leadership at the lay level. He was a bishop in the church over a local congregation. He was also a stake president over several congregations. And when he was a stake president in both Boise, Idaho, and then when he moved to Washington, D.C., he was a stake president there also for a short period. He got to know several of the apostles. They would come through. And in those days in the church, they would stay with local stake presidents in their homes. Today, that's not the case. I don't, I'm quite certain that's not the case. They, they get a hotel room and all of that. But to save money, the apostles from Salt Lake would travel to the various uh, churches throughout the United States and Europe and elsewhere, and they would stay with the local leaders. Well, Benson got to know a number of these local leaders uh, in that respect. And so because of those connections, they saw what a hardworking guy that he was. They saw what kind of a pastor he was to his flock. And um, 
And then in 1943, he got a call from an elderly church president named uh, Heber J. Grant to meet with him at his cabin in a canyon in Salt Lake City. And it was at that cabin where President Grant, the church president, extended a call uh, to Ezra Taft Benson to serve in the highest quorum of the church. He was about 43, 44 years of age at the time. So a fairly young man, because most members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, which is the second highest um, body in the LDS church, it's uh, generally a very older crowd. And so here's a younger man with a young family being called into the Twelve. And so, yeah, that's the context of uh, where he's coming from. So he's called into the room. And how does Ezra respond to this calling? <laughs> he responds the same way that most of them do, at least from what I've read, which is, why me? I'm not worthy for this. But I'll accept the call and I'll pray for God's help to help me. And so it's a, it's a humbling moment because it is a serious call. Your Mormons believe that the leadership follows the apostolic pattern set forth in the New Testament, where uh, quite literally the apostles travel the world preaching the gospel, organizing the stakes of Zion as it's a little cliche in Mormonism. So he's now going to be uh, organizing um, different churches abroad. He'll be calling new stake presidents and bishops when he visits their local um, churches. He'll be meeting with government officials, particularly in countries, for example, that haven't allowed Mormon missionaries to come in. So there's a number of different facets to it. He's over temples in the church. He might be on the, as an apostle, he might be on the board of trustees at the church's university, BYU, in Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Um, there's a number of things he could be doing. And so it's a full-time ministry. And unlike um, some of our Catholic uh, brothers and sisters and other faith traditions where you can reach emeritus status. In the Mormon church, there is no emeritus status. It's, I guess you're emeritus when you're dead. And uh, that's the 12. The, um, the 70s, um, the, this is the lower, the third highest tier in the LDS church. So it goes, the first presidency is the top tier, the quorum of the 12, which is the second tier. And then they have what are called quorums of 70s, or in those days, they were called assistant up to the 12 apostles. They were since renamed to the Quorums of the 70 in the 1970s. But those third tiers, um, you reach emeritus status at age 70. But the apostles, you can serve until, you're, until you die, really. So basically, he's called. And then not long after that, because you had mentioned many of them are sent to go to different countries, maybe open doors for missionary activity. And he's actually called to go to Europe um, right after the, the hellscape that was World War II. And tell us a little bit about that. Well, he wasn't their first choice. I mean, he's a junior member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He was ordained in 1943. And a year and a half later, they, they call him on this momentous mission. I mean, my goodness, war-torn Europe. He's got little kids at home. And they, um, they didn't want to call him. He was, I think, their third choice. And the first two people, um, the apostles that they had in mind, they were sick. They didn't have the good health to allow them to travel overseas and stay for an extended period of time. So they gave <clears throat> the church president um, recognized Elder Benson, that's the name that, that apostles are called, recognized that Elder Benson had a young family and knew it would be a tremendous hardship on his family, but felt that he would be the best ambassador to the church to help the Latter-day Saints in war-torn Europe get back on their feet again. And so... Um, 
I talk about this in my book a little bit. One of the things that Benson does in preparation for his meeting is he contacts former President Herbert Hoover, who had served a humanitarian mission himself in the 19 teens after World War I. So he reaches out to Hoover uh, for advice. And uh, Hoover writes him this really wonderful letter. And he says, just listen to these people, follow your heart, establish good relationships with the US government, uh, diplomats. And, um, and so Benson is called to this mission. He has, uh, they assign a 30 year old um, young man named Frederick Babel to be his companion. Mormons don't travel alone for a lot of different reasons. And so Frederick Babel is a young married father. I think he has a kid, young baby at this point. So he's about 14 years younger, or 15 years younger than Ezra. And so Ezra Taft Benson and Frederick Babel will spend 11 and a half months touring something like 11 European countries. And everything that you can imagine about World War II they see. Emaciated people in the streets who are scrambling for food, children thieving and begging, bombed out buildings. And then of course the crown, the, the capstone would be when he visits Warsaw and sees the, some of the crematoriums. And he writes to his wife, probably one of the most touching letters I read uh, preparing this book. He said, and I'll paraphrase, he said, you wouldn't believe the things that I'm seeing here. If I couldn't see them with my own eyes, I wouldn't believe them. I pray to God that you will always be spared from the terrible ravages of war, talking about his wife. And so it's this touching moment where he's uh, writing home to his wife about what he's experiencing. It's just, quite frankly, it just overwhelms him. And um, when the, uh, later on, we'll just fast forward for a quick second, but when Benson becomes the church president in the 1980s, so four decades later, the LDS church will publish these letters home to his wife. So some of the letters that I use are published and a lot of them aren't. But anyway, the publisher, uh, which is called Desert Book, it's the church's publishing house, they correctly note that it's the most touching uh, Mormon mission in the annals of the modern church. And I think it's hard to, to disagree with that, given that he's meeting with Latter-day Saints, mostly, that's his mission, but also um, other people who aren't of the faith. And one of the things that Benson does is he listens to Hoover's counsel and he works with government agencies to, um, to facilitate the transportation of food and supplies from Salt Lake City to the various um, war-torn cities. It's one thing to have the supplies sitting on a pallet in a warehouse in Salt Lake City and quite another to facilitate its delivery, which is no small thing, particularly when railroads have been bombed out and uh, airports are no longer so it became a logistical nightmare uh, to coordinate this massive relief effort. And Benson is front and center of all of it. It's really, it, it really is one of the most pivotal moments of his life. He'll talk about this experience, this, this 11 month experience in which he travels over 11,000 miles. He'll talk about it for the rest of his life. It's, it's really, it's remarkable. I, I get chills reading about it just because it brings you to the streets of World War II and these bombed out cities. And it's, it's really a harrowing experience. And we're going to get into this as the conversation progresses, because we're going to see that that in many ways set him off on the trajectory of where he ended up going and the views, how it influenced his worldview. Um, and, and we're going to get into that because I think it's important that we start there because that really informs where he's coming from of how he sees how things went down in Europe. And he was afraid. I mean, 
in his mind, he really felt like this could happen to the United States and he was going to do everything he could to stop it from happening. So that really influenced his worldview. Um, and he thought a lot of the ideas that he saw there is what could you know, bring America down. And so that's, that's very influential. But before we get to that, we're, we, we move on to 1948 and there was some talks with Dewey uh, had reached out to him about possibly serving in the cabinet. Of course, we know that didn't quite work out so well. Uh, we all saw the famous headline, Dewey defeats Truman. So we know the end of what happened there. And he was actually in that the hotel of the headquarters there when it was happening. So he was very, very intimate with Dewey. And then there was somebody down the, the next Republican nominee. Um, he didn't actually know very well, from my understanding. Uh, but the next Republican nominee, of course, was D Dwight D. Eisenhower. And um, he reached out to Ezra Taft Benson. And uh, what did he propose to him? Well, so Ezra Taft Benson is, uh, of course, in the church he's known because he's an apostle, but he's known in farming circles. Uh, Ezra Taft Benson had moved from Boise where he worked in farm cooperatives in the 1930s during the Great Depression. This is also where he developed this intense disdain for Franklin Roosevelt that will shape his politics. But uh, because of his success running these farm cooperatives in the 1930s in Boise, um, he lands a national position in Washington, D.C. And so he's, he's uh, president of the National Farmers Cooperative. I can't remember the exact acronym, but it's the largest farm cooperative in the United States. So, so people start to notice this Idaho boy in the nation's capital for the stellar work he's doing. And that's why Dewey invites him to serve in his cabinet is because of his prominence rising up through the ranks. Benson had a just a relentless work ethic. And people who knew him knew that the man worked a number of hours a day. And he was a good, we would say today, a good multitasker and a good delegator. He could, he was one of those guys that would do a lot of the work himself, but he would also delegate, which allowed him to be twice as effective. And so the apostles noted this when they visited his home, when they stayed with him during church assignments. And then the farmers cooperative leaders throughout the United States had noticed his work ethic. And so Dewey calls him, um, in that regard, he said, if you if we win the presidency, can you check with your church to see if you can join my cabinet? And he said he, he would, and he did, and they gave him permission. Well, as you pointed out, Stephen, he didn't win. And um, But uh, Dwight Eisenhower uh, is elected in 1952, his five-star general, enormously uh, important. He's, most people, scholars put him at moderate center-right, I guess. And um, He's looking for someone to, Eisenhower wants someone as his agricultural secretary to do two things. One is to roll back the ag agricultural subsidies that Franklin Roosevelt had put in place during the Great Depression. That's really important. He, um, Eisenhower thinks this is socialized agriculture and the government needs to get out of this business. And number two, he wants somebody from the Midwest um, who has a connection with farmers. This is a sort of the politics of it all, right? And Utah is not in the Midwest, but Arthur Watkins, the uh, famous Utah Senator Republican, uh, who plays a leading role in M Joseph McCarthy's prosecution. Um, and also Ezra Taft Benson's cousin, his distant cousin, the most influential Senator um, in US politics at the time, a guy named Robert Taft from Ohio, who was not a Mormon, but he's a distant cousin of Ezra Taft Benson. 
And when both Senator Watkins and Senator Taft hear that President-elect Eisenhower is fishing around for a an agricultural secretary, they both write Ike letters. We know the perfect guy. And um, so they, they, uh, they extend the call to him, but I, uh, that Benson says what he always says when he's, in, um, when he's invited to do something, which is, I've got to check with my boss. And anyone who understands how the Mormon church works, I'm calling it Mormon today. It's the full name is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But, um, but in those days, it was known as the Mormon church. So my listeners might forgive me for, for putting it in context today. But anyway, um, so in those days, uh, when, you, when you were called as an apostle, you donated your life. That was your life. That took, that, that transcended everything else, including your own family. And so you were to give your time and your energy and your talents to the Lord. Again, even over your own needs and your own family. And so when uh, Eisenhower called uh, Benson, he was giving a devotional sermon at BYU. They didn't have cell phones in those days. So they tracked him down. And they said, um, President wants to talk to you, Eisenhower. Uh, and that's where they extended the call to him. And then he, uh, Benson, approached the 86 or seven-year-old church president, I'm trying to think of David O. McKay's age, but President McKay's age, quite elderly. And he said, um, Elder Benson said, President McKay, I've been asked to serve in the cabinet of Dwight Eisenhower. Do you give me your blessing? And President McKay said, without hesitation, yes, you could do the country and the church a lot of good. And McKay is a, is a conservative Republican. We'll, we'll get into the differences with the Birch Society in a little bit. But McKay is a conservative Republican. And when um, Eisenhower won the election in 1952, he made a quip, McKay made a quip to a friend in private. He said, this is the first proof in a long time that we've seen that there is a God. And, um, you know, this is during the Korean War and it was a joke, but that, that just shows you where McKay's mind was in the early 50s with, with politics. So Benson gives us his blessing, gets the president's blessing, and he travels to the, um, the gosh, uh, let's see, the Commodore Hotel in downtown New York City. And that's where he meets with president-elect where the headquarters are. And it, Benson's like anybody else. He's overwhelmed by, by this larger than life figure, this World War II figure, this five-star. And so he's completely mesmerized by General Eisenhower. And um, during their interview, Benson confesses. He said, General Eisenhower, I didn't even vote for you in the primaries. He votes for his cousin, Robert Taft, whom I beat. And Eisenhower, being the gracious guy that he was, he said, that doesn't concern me. I would expect nothing less of you, you know, to support your cousin, your blood relation. And so they have this conversation and he, uh, Eisenhower senses that Benson is uncomfortable with the call and he's not willing to say, yes, I'll do it. He's uncomfortable. And uh, so he says, Ezra, what's, what's wrong? And he said, frankly, uh, General Eisenhower, I'm not used to having a military guy run the country. In my view, they're separate. And he said, secondly, I doubt it would be hard to replace the joy and the fulfillment I get from serving in my church. So Benson doesn't really want this. And then Eisenhower, who, who must have done his homework, 
Otherwise, if, if your readers, your listeners are Christian, they might say the Holy Spirit pricked his heart. Because uh, General Eisenhower said, Ezra, you cannot afford to serve your God and your country. And Ezra later writes, he said, that did it for me. I couldn't tell him no. And so, but that's what he said. You can't afford to serve your God, your country. We need you. And so Ezra agrees under those conditions. Well, and that's the thing, because uh, I, I don't know if he mentioned it directly to Benson, uh, or, uh, but as I recall, he, Eisenhower felt there, the need to have a churchman in the cabinet. And, um, and, and I want to go this way just for a minute, um, because a couple things that were happening at this time was uh, because of the Cold War, you had uh, godless communism. And so you had uh, moves to add uh, under God uh, to the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, in God we trust unto all the currency. Uh, but one of the things uh, that he did was prayer was introduced into the cabinet meetings. And I believe that was done via uh, Benson. And now just real quick, did he actually lead the prayers in those cabinet meetings as a result? He did. He would, um, so he was recognized, he wasn't the only religious person in the cabinet. John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State, was intensely religious, Christian man. But he was, he had a, an ecclesiastical position, Benson. And so the cabinet, they didn't know a whiff about Mormonism. Now, this isn't 2021, where a lot of people have heard of Mormons, maybe through Mitt Romney or just whatever with social media. But in those days, you know, they just didn't know a lot about Mormons. But Elder Benson asked, he said, do you mind? I'm a religious man. Do you mind if we begin the Catholic cabinet discussions with prayer? And they said, yes. And here's a funny story that's not in my book, but so he got used to saying the prayers, and a couple of interesting things resulted from that. One was one of the cap, one of the news media heard about this, and they said, "Can you let us see your prayer? We want to publish it." Now Mormons are not like other faith traditions where um, where ministers write out prayers, where they give it a lot of thought, and it's sort of an invocation from the heavens to flow through them. They give it some thought, and they put their words to paper. That's not how Mormons pray. They don't write prayers out. Uh, typically in public anyway. So, uh, so Benson said, so I don't write prayers. Well, can you just reconstruct the one you gave a couple of days ago? So he reconstructs it. And, uh, but here's, so that's the first story. The second story is he would give these long prayers that would annoy the heck out of his fellow cabinet members. And there was some chatter among or between two of them. Uh, they said to Ike in private, they said, Please don't ask Ezra to pray anymore. He, 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 his prayers are way too long. Please don't. Just kind of get into our meeting, go right to business. And so there were a handful of times where they just forgot about Ezra. I don't know if he said anything to remind the, the president, you know, look, we, we didn't pray today. But that was by design because some of the cabinet members had complained. So how long would a prayer last? Would it be like five minutes, 10 minutes? Or, I mean, what oh, was no. Oh. See, that's the irony is... Um, I have to be careful how I word this, because in the Mormon community, there are different kinds of prayers. For example, if you're praying, Mormons believe in temples, and they have these are sacred worship services above and beyond their, more, their meeting houses. So when, when they say prayers in the temple, or when they dedicate a, uh, a temple for special service after it's been constructed, they give a special dedicatory prayer, that's much longer, and that is written out. But the everyday run-of-the-mill prayers are not written out. And so uh, how long would they be? Oh, it could be two, three, four minutes. 
I mean, it wouldn't be 10 or 15 minutes because, you know, there's no way that the cabinet would tolerate this stuff. General Eisenhower, who was not very religious, wouldn't have tolerated that. In fact, Eisenhower, when he was in office, uh, people would ask him, what religion are you? And he would just say he was Mamie's religion. But he wasn't. He'd never been baptized. And so... <laughs> <laughs> so he got to Washington and he recognized that he probably ought to belong to a church. So he joined one of the local Protestant churches. I, I can't remember, I think it was Presbyterian. So he joins the church and, and Ike is, is very intuitive. He understands that there's a Cold War, these godless commies who don't believe in anything other than Karl Marx, you know, who, who, the same guy who once said that religion is an opiate or, or pharmacon of the masses. Um, Ike understood intuitively that Americans related to this, this binary world of good and evil. If the Russians were atheists and followers of Marx, Americans needed to project their Christianity onto the world stage. And what a better way to do that than to put in God we trust on our coins. A lot of people think the founding fathers did that. Um, that's not true at all. This is sort of a layer to the onion that comes in the 1950s. It's also the same time when um, Americans under Eisenhower's leadership, uh, they include the word one nation under God in the pledge. It wasn't the first time the pledge had been written. It was written decades earlier in the late 19th century by a socialist, no less. But um, Eisenhower includes the word or leads, supports this notion to include one nation under God. So now you have that in the pledge that every school child is saying in the public schools. Now you have one nation under God on the currency to remind Americans that they're, they're, the source of their strength comes from God, and then it's God who will help them overcome and defeat these godless Russians. And Benson plays right into this stuff. He loves it. And he frequently talks about these kinds of things in his public discourses on farming. So we are having, um, at this time, we're okay, and I do wanna to get to the farming um, in a little bit about his actual policies in the agriculture department, but just to kind of move into the fact that we are dealing with the Cold War and godless communism and how uh, uh, Eisenhower kind of wants to Christianize the nation, the government and everything. Um, this is also the time when we have the rise of Joe McCarthy and the Red Scare. Now, um, interestingly enough, my, on my father's side, we uh, come from a long line of Republicans. Uh, my mother's side, they were Roosevelt Democrats because they were farmers. And uh, my great-grandfather was actually uh, sent a letter uh, basically by the, I think it was the House on American Committee, they were kind of looking at him as a potential communist. So that's kind of an interesting story for my family. Um, but yeah, so we, farmer. Yeah, commie farmer. Well, he was part of, uh, he was the state secretary in Michigan for like one of the farmers unions. So that was, would immediately make you suspect, I guess, back then. Uh, but the rise of Joe McCarthy and the Red Scare in the early 50s and how it informs um, Ezra Taft and the American general. What are your thoughts? Well, so Benson, I mean, it, it's really, really important to, to divorce ourselves for a moment from our own worldview and our own modern sensibilities, if you will. And I'm a historian, so I write about people and, and events, and I look at what, what influences them. And context is critical here. You cannot understand Ezra Taft Benson unless you understand the Cold War. And so Ezra Taft Benson is called into church leadership a couple of years before the Cold War ends. Uh, so in 1944, as we or 43, as we talked about, the Cold War starts a few years later. And then uh, Benson dies in 1994, some five years after it ends. So his entire adult life is shaped by these Cold War events. 
And so he follows what's going on in 1949 with the Rosenbergs, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. He, um, he knows about Alger Hiss, the first alleged um, uh, communist in the US government in the 1930s, who's in the Department of Agriculture, no less, his own, Benson's own shop. So Benson knows about this. Benson also, um, when he, when he uh, comes into, moves to Washington in uh, early 1952, the Korean War is winding down and he's part of cabinet discussions to make that happen. And so everywhere around him is talk of the Cold War. And when Joe McCarthy comes of age, Benson is just sucked right into this lock, stock and barrel. He doesn't like some of the tactics of McCarthy but he believes virtually everything McCarthy is saying. And what's interesting, Stephen, is um, Eisenhower can't stand McCarthy. He thinks he's a fraud, he's a charlatan. And yet you have Benson who just thinks he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And um, if some of your listeners uh, read some Eisenhower literature, it's really interesting because Eisenhower is kind of caught in a predicament. Everything in politics is about one thing. You and I both know this. It's about getting reelected. And um, Ike hates McCarthy with a passion, but it doesn't want to denounce him because he's afraid of losing his supporters. And he, he literally is torn on, the, on, on, a, on one day, he, I'm gonna just come out and slam that guy publicly. The next day I'm gonna back off because McCarthy's saying some bad things about Eisenhower. And Benson keeps his mouth shut by and large, but he, he in private, he's writing his, friend's letters saying what a great guy McCarthy is. He's right. There are commies everywhere. They're in schools, they're in churches, they're in uh, the newspaper industry. And then later on, of course, Benson will turn his, these accusations towards his own church, including his own colleagues in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. So McCarthy is really, really important. And as late as 1976, when McCarthy's long dead and Benson is long out of politics. Um, Benson writes his friend, uh, his close friend of his, a guy named Cleon Skousig. And he said, history has shown us that everything McCarthy has said is correct. This is 1976. So McCarthy is an enormously influential person. Uh, Benson comes into Washington under this second red scare as it's called. And I wanna just uh, share one story because I think the context is important here, which is that Benson received a priesthood blessing from the church president before he went to Washington. And the church president, as I mentioned, is a very conservative Republican and he too is influenced by communism and often sermonized against communism yes. in the face general conference. And so he and his counselor, a man named Reuben Clark, they both give Benson this blessing and they uh, counsel Benson to warn against, watch for communism, to speak out against it. And Benson takes this as his marching orders, that this is what he's to do in Washington and also what he's to do as, as an apostle in his church to ferret out um, commies within the church ranks. And so Benson comes into uh, Washington in 53 and the first thing he does is he establishes a secret committee, a surveillance committee. This has never been written about before, except in my book. Um, and they target a guy who worked in the State Department and they were transferring him to the agricultural department, Benson's shop. 
And uh, his name is Wolf Leginski. And Wolf Leginski has two strikes against him in Benson's eyes. He's a, he's a Russian and he's a Jew. And Benson had bought into a lot of this right-wing literature that there was this conspiracy or cabal of Jews to rule the world. It was the Jews that were spreading communism and socialism in the country. And Benson um, was heavily influenced by a pamphlet uh, that he would discuss at length with Reuben Clark, who's one of his intellectual heroes. But the pamphlet's called The Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, or sometimes it's called just Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And it was, it was proven to be a forgery, uh, but Benson buys into this stuff. And so he targets Leginsky and he fires Leginsky without any evidence that Leginsky is a commie, other than he's from Russia and that he's a Jew. And so it creates a, just a public relations disaster for President Eisenhower, because this is really the first, first thing that Benson does is he fires Leginsky. And of course, to um, critics in the US Senate and the US Congress, this is, this is McCarthyism all over again. It's his way of throwing somebody under the bus and then asking questions later. And so Benson, um, when, the, when pesky journalists would ask him, you know, show us the evidence that, that uh, Leginsky is a commie, that he belonged to communist organizations. Benson said that I can't show you the evidence because it's in a confidential FBI file that you were not permitted to see. All the evidence is there though, trust me. And when I was writing my book, um, I thought, oh, what the heck? I'll write the FBI and get Wolf Leginsky's FBI file. It's been years after the fact. I bet they'll give it to me through a FOIA request. And they did. And um, I got a, one day in the mail, I got a big old envelope this thick. And it was Wolf Leginsky's FBI file. And I read that thing over and over and over again. And there was not one piece of evidence to suggest he was a commie. In fact, just the opposite, that he had written articles, Leginsky had published things, criticizing the collective state in Russia. And it also, the FBI file talked about that uh, John Foster Dulles, his former boss and the secretary, uh, the, the secretary of state or in the state department, his former boss had given him glowing reviews. And he had been in the country since like 1922. So it wasn't as though he just, you know, came from Russia and then <laughs> got hired by the State Department. He'd been here a long time. He'd, he'd proven his worth, shown that he wasn't a communist. And Benson didn't seem to care about any of that stuff. And so Leginsky is the first casualty of um, Benson's little red scare within the Agricultural Department. And I'll end the story here. In 1962, when Benson published his memoirs, so he had left government service by two years at that point. And... Um, he still refused to admit that he made a mistake. Even after Eisenhower had, had reinstilled a Leginsky in another government agency, because there was no evidence that he was a communist. So it was a complete botched effort and Eisenhower was miffed with his new um, agricultural secretary. This is how they start off their time together. So it's, it's not going well for Mr. Benson. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> it is pretty remarkable when you think about it. You, Sometimes the conspiratorial mindset can create already that template that once you're convinced of something to be true, uh, no amount of evidence is going to convince you otherwise. As a matter of fact, sometimes the more evidence that's presented to you, the more you'll stand your ground. I think we see that today, and I think we see a little bit of that there.
you know, I don't, I don't want to defend Secretary Benson too much because he clearly made a mistake. But I do think context is important that, um, just want to reemphasize something, that um, Alger Hiss was, was in the Department of Agriculture in the 30s. And um, the evidence, I think most scholars would agree today, the emphasis is most, not all, but most scholars would agree that there is evidence to suggest that he was, he was on the communist payroll. And so Benson frequently writes about Alger Hiss. And so that, that's sort of the part of the backdrop for his determined effort to oust Leginsky. But Leginsky, it's just guilt by association, guilt by, by name, right? You're, you're from Russia and you're from, you're a Jew. And Leginsky had family members who were still behind the Iron Curtain. And that was also something that weighed heavily on Benson, that somehow his family's allegiances will pull their son there. And, um, but it's, it's disappointing that, that Benson was, he's a stubborn man. It's disappointing that he didn't recognize his mistake and at least apologize for it. Because in those days, if, as you know, Stephen, as a student of history, if you tar somebody with that communist label, it could ruin you professionally and personally. And Benson didn't seem to, to give a whiff about the consequences of Leginsky's career, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I often remember growing up because for the longest time, there were many people on the left that defended Alger Hiss well into the 80s, going into the early 90s. And then all the papers came out that showed conclusively. And I know that a lot of right-wingers felt vindicated by that, saying, see, that we were right all along, you know. So sometimes that will, there, people will, and I'm sure Benson at the time when that information came out was like, see, I told you, you know, <laughs> yeah, I was well, right Benson, all along. Benson was dead by then. Oh, um, the stuff well, that came out was. Oh, you're probably right. Yeah, he died in 94. So yeah, it may have, he may have passed by that time or it may have been incapacitated at that point. As well, well, the, his stuff came out in 96 and Benson would have been oh, dead for two years. Boy, I, thought, I thought it came out in the early 90s. Well, either way, no, my mistake. Yeah. So yeah, so we cover the, the uh, communism and the, and everything that dealt with in the Department of Agriculture. Now, let's talk a little bit about the agricultural policies that Benson was uh, attempting to implement, uh, because he had, uh, Eisenhower said from the beginning, uh, I agree with you, I think we need to roll back the New Deal, and we need to have a more conservative policy when it comes to farming, um, and less government inter intervention. And so basically Benson said, okay, you know, that we're both simpatico on that, let's do it. And so Ezra Taft attempts to uh, start to pull back on some of the New Deal things and, and what started happening. Well, uh, so I wanna just go back just quickly about the New Deal and why it's so revolutionary and why people like Benson are affected by it, by not just Benson, but conservatives in general. Um, so during the Great Depression, um, on average, 24, 25% of Americans are out of work. One out of every four Americans are out of work. In some places, it's one out of two Americans in some cities, in some rural areas. So 50% in some areas. And for a lot of Americans, when the, the, the poverty rate is so high and uh, the suffering is just incredible, um, capitalism has failed them. Capitalism has failed them. And you'll see a lot of people um, in the 1930s in the United States uh, flirt with socialism and flirt with communism. And that's why there's the Communist Party. It's a little uptick in the 1930s because capitalism isn't worth preserving. And what's ironic about this is that Franklin Roosevelt will preserve capitalism during its darkest hours. And of course, heavily regulated with some government programs, but he preserves capitalism during its darkest hour. And 
Um, and he also creates the modern welfare state, gets Americans to really reconceptualize their role or their relationship to the federal government. And of course, one of his principal programs is Social Security. Before the 1935, the Social Security Act was passed. I mean, when Americans got old, they could save on their own. Um, but they would look at their churches and their charities and so forth to help them during their advanced years. But Franklin Roosevelt, you know, whether your listeners agree with this or not, is, is really not important to any of us, really, for that matter. But, um, but he reconceptualizes the role of the government to help out these new people or these older people in their elderly years. And um, part of that mindset is also to help out the nation's producers of food. We cannot allow these people to go hungry. We have to subsidize some of their work to act as a bulwark against the vicissitudes of the weather, right? If you have a potato crop, I served at LDS Mission in Idaho. So potatoes were huge. Also in Maine, but our potatoes are that big and those big old russets in Idaho. I used to tell the Idaho farmers, they said, where are you from, uh, Elder Harris? And I would say, I'm from the real potato state. And they would look at me and they'd get really flustered. Wait a minute, you can't be from Idaho and be serving here too. <laughs> then I would say I'm from Maine and they would just laugh and oh, that guy, you know, little, little stew potatoes, that's nothing. Anyway, <laughs> um, but these farmers, uh, these potato Idaho farmers, they, they would invest a lot of just money and labor into this potato crop and just one bad weather or year could just destroy everything. And so Franklin Roosevelt recognized that the federal government had a role to play, not just to assist farmers during their time of need, but also it, was, it served the public good. And so um, conservatives, of course, um, pushed back against these subsidies thinking that it smacked of socialism. And Benson was one of them. And so Benson didn't think that the government should subsidize nearly as much uh, for farmers as it was doing. He didn't say cut them off cold turkey because Benson wasn't stupid. He had recognized, he had seen farmers, he'd visited them in their farms during the Eisenhower years. If you Google um, Eisenhower or uh, Benson, you'll see Benson, pictures of Benson out with farmers in the Midwest, picking up the soil and letting it fall through his fingers. and. So he knows what these people need, but he thinks they're getting too much. And so one of the things that Benson does is he wants to scale back these, these Roosevelt and Truman farm subsidies. And so as he starts to lay the groundwork to scale back these farm subsidies, the farmers show up at these public events furious. There are stories told of farmers throwing eggs at him as he's speaking. They're booing him. They show up at his office in DC and they pound on his door and they curse at him. And so uh, Benson becomes the most hated man in Eisenhower's cabinet. Now I wanna, you know, I, I'm not here to defend Benson but I, I do wanna say something that I think is really, really important. Benson believes that this, this should happen. This is good policy. The government is, shouldn't be into socialized agriculture as he calls it. But Benson is just doing what Eisenhower wants him to do. Benson is not going rogue. He talks about it with Eisenhower. The difference between the two men is that Benson opposes everything on or decides everything on principle. 
Ike is more pragmatic. He understands the politics at play. If you scale back 80% of somebody's farm subsidy, they're going to be angry. And Benson is like, you know, that's the right thing to do. Damn be the consequences. And so anyway, uh, so Benson is only doing what Ike wants him to do. And it creates a, a faith crisis in the Mormon church. There are farmers in Logan, Utah, for example, a farmer's wife, she writes Reuben Clark, who is the, the governing first presidency. He's a mentor to Ezra Taft Benson. And, he, and she writes, Dear President Clark, uh, Secretary Benson says he's going to cut back our farm subsidies. My husband and I will lose, I think she said something like a million dollars over, I don't know, two years or something. She said, if, if, if he succeeds, it will destroy our farm. We, we can no longer pay our mortgage. We can't pay our employees. We can't pay our, 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 tract, our tractors to be upkept. What do we do? Is this church doctrine? And Reuben Clark, this is something they feared the most, right? He's an ambassador to the church, but he's also a public figure politically. And so Reuben Clark writes this poor woman back and he says that, nope, uh, what Benson does is his own thing and it has nothing to do with his church calling. Well, this woman cannot separate the two because as an apostle, you're supposed to be inspired in all things, whether it's you know political, civil, doesn't matter. And so, but that's what the, um, the leaders had feared would happen the most is that um, Benson would become unpopular and that critics would link his unpopular programs with the church. And to a large extent that did happen, unfortunately. And so this is what's so interesting. So on one hand, you have Richard Nixon, who's going to Eisenhower and said, we got to get this guy out of here. But then David O. McKay, President McKay approaches President Eisenhower and basically asks, well, he asks him to do something. And what was that? Well, so the 56 elections coming up, Eisenhower's second term in office, and every Republican, every Republican said to Ike, you got to drop this guy. He's toxic. And again, I just want to just want to defend Benson for a small bit. He's just doing what Ike wants him to do. But he gets all the blame. And Ike was just wonderful at deflection. And of course, Benson and other people know that, of course, this is just another rule of politics is that if you're serving in a cabinet or some high level position, you always take the blame, not the guy in the hot seat, right? That's just what you do. You deflect blame as much as possible to protect the main guy. And um, anyway, Benson was not politically savvy. <laughs> he, was, he was a principled churchman. He was not politically savvy at all. And it really hurt his political career. But anyway, um, uh, Republican senators had told Ike, you've got to drop this guy. He's toxic. You'll never get elected having him in the cabinet again. And Benson, who is a very proud man, he is at the top of the food chain in his church. He's an effective speaker. He has this distinguished position of ecclesiastical authority. He's never been vilified like this before. I mean, sure, some of the flock might carp about their leaders in private or something, but the church doesn't allow for criticism of its leaders. It just doesn't. There's a little saying in the church that you cannot criticize the Lord's anointed, at least publicly. So that's the, that's the uh, milieu in which Benson is reared uh, in the church. And now you've got people publicly just lampooning him on a daily basis. Life Magazine, 
Newsweek Time, the most popular magazines in the country are running these unfavorable stories about him. One story even suggested that he took money illegally from the government to build a cabin in the mountains. No evidence for any of this stuff, but they're just nailing uh, Secretary Benson to the wall. So anyway, um, he, he writes a letter to his uh, a cousin of his who just happens to be, it's a, she's a single woman, she had never married, and she is David O. McKay's secretary. Her name is Clara Middlemas. And um, Apostle Benson writes from Washington, D.C., Dear Claire, can you put my name on the prayer roll? I'm not doing well. This is, this is in 19, early 1956. And the prayer roll is a special um, uh, function in the church in which if somebody's having a health issue or some kind of struggle in their life, you can call the temple, or I'm sure today it's done through, you don't have to call perhaps, but you can um, request to have your name put on a special roll with other people. And when people worship in the temple, when Latter-day Saints worship in the temple, they, they say a collective prayer on behalf of these people who are struggling, either you know, with their health or with some dire situation in their life. So it's kind of a, the collective faith of the saints behind you to help get you through this very rough part in your life. So he asked Claire Middlemas, um, can you put my name on the prayer roll? I need your prayers. And he writes a letter. Benson writes a letter to Ike. And he says, I'm out. I quit. I'm done. And um, I was shocked because I didn't know this going into this research at all. I found the letter in the Eisenhower archives. And for reasons that I can't explain, he changes his mind. And Eisenhower um, calls David O. McKay, the church president. He said, can you come visit me? This is dire. And so McKay goes to Washington, DC. This is in 1956. And um, he says, uh, McKay says, you can, you can terminate him. You can let him come home and resume his duties as an apostle. And um, Eisenhower says, no. I'm going to stick by him. And I think that, I, I just want to pause for a moment. I always look for the best in people. And Eisenhower had been told by everybody in their dog, US senators with whom he was close and with whom he needed their support politically. He was told by the Mormon church president, get rid of this guy. And Ike sticks by him. And I think that'll be, I know we're going to talk about the Burt Society, the second segment, Stephen, but that becomes critical how Ike is so loyal to Benson and Benson will betray him later on. It's really, it's crushing to be honest. So anyway, um, uh, McKay says, bring him home. And Ike says, no, I want your permission to keep him for a second term. And McKay reluctantly agrees to it. And Benson um, changes his mind. He rescinds his letter of resignation and decides to serve for a second term. And literally, he becomes the most unpopular man, so much so that when Richard Nixon decides to run for the presidency in 1960, when President Eisenhower is termed out, Nixon tells Ike, I can't even have that guy around me. He's toxic. I can't have him anywhere near me. So when I'm with the farmers seeking their vote in the Midwest, I'm, when I'm campaigning, get him out of the country, send him abroad. And they do. Um, Eisenhower sends uh, Benson to uh, 11 different countries behind the Iron Curtain, including Russia. 
And that's the time in which Ike sends him away while Nixon's campaigning. It's interesting stuff, you know, and, and so one thing I, as we were going to finish off this segment, but I wanted to ask you this question because, you know, Eisenhower did show a lot of loyalty to Ezra Taft Benson. And, um, but still, Ezra felt, even though he's the only one that served two terms and that Eisenhower did defend him uh, on some level, ultimately Benson felt that he, he came to a conclusion that maybe um, Eisenhower wasn't there 100% with him all the time, or maybe, I mean, kind of flesh that out, like maybe he, there, there's a reason why he turns on him and this, and then your, and your speculation is what you, this is why you think he turns on him later on. Yeah, so, so because Eisenhower, Eisenhower allows Benson to just to flail in public. He doesn't come to his aid, doesn't give him the support that he needs. He doesn't say to the press, you know, back off him. If you want to criticize someone, criticize me. He's just doing what I want him to do. Now, they had some differences of policy, to be sure. But by and large, Benson was called into the cabinet to scale back these farm subsidies. And um, so Benson is out there on the front lines doing the president's work, and he's taking all of these brickbats. I mean, they're just coming at him from, it's like siege warfare on this guy. And again, I, I just want to just, just emphasize something. This is a guy who's not used to criticism. You do not criticize apostles in the church. And in fact, just a quick story, when, when Benson went to um, his, his church mission in Europe in 1945 to tour war-torn Europe, one of the things that uh, one of the apostles told his companion, Frederick Babel, before Babel left for Europe with Benson, he said, um, do not lecture Benson, Elder Benson. Do not lecture him. Do not offer your opinion unless asked, because he will consider everything you say very seriously. He's a very serious person. And that story really reveals a lot about his personality. So here you have this very serious person. And he's getting criticized all over the place. And the president just leaves him out there to hang. And there's no question it sours his relationship. And um, Benson was, as I mentioned, he was just in awe of the general. And really, truthfully, always was. But personally, he could not abide the fact that I didn't come to his support. And so that kind of leads us into our next segment. Uh, which will completely change the trajectory of where he was going and how, how he starts embracing uh, going to the further to the right, embracing some far right causes and a far right organization called the John Birch Society and its founder, Robert Welch. And I think that's, that's a good stopping off point for this episode. So Matt, I want to thank you so much for joining us in this segment. I want to go to everybody to like and subscribe and ring the notification. Uh, everybody have yourself a great day. And uh, keep watching and stay tuned for part two.